there was the the academic, uh, you know, thrill of it, but I was covering the hospital half the time. And once I started doing it, I started to realize that um, sometimes uh, there were mistaken diagnoses that were corrected by uh, immunohistochemistry. Sometimes uh, you could direct therapy based on it. So in the monthly and, and quarterly pathology meetings in Tucson and around the state and eventually around the West, I had a collection of cases that showed how it was that the diagnosis was changed by immunohistochemistry. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Automated staining has been one of the major technological advances in the pathology lab, but if you think about it, it's really only been in widespread use since the late 90s. My guest today is Dr. Tom Grogan. Back in the early days of IHC, Dr. Grogan realized the need for automated staining and developed the first automated stainer. He also founded a company you might have heard of called Ventana, and more recently, he wrote a book about his life and work and tells the story of how all these things happened. All right, here's Dr. Tom Grogan. So, Dr. Grogan, we're going to be talking mostly about uh, your book, which you published in 2019, I believe. Correct. Yeah. And the book is called Chasing the Invisible, A Doctor's Quest to Abolish the Last Unseen Cancer Cell, which is a great right. title. <laughs> now, the, the book is kind of an autobiography, but it's also more than that. And I'm curious, like at the beginning, how did you come up with the idea to write a book? Well, it, it's uh, fundamentally a memoir. So it, it's looking back and uh, I had some unique experiences. For one thing, I lived in two worlds. I lived in the world of medicine and pathology and then I lived in the entrepreneurial world, the business world, the venture capital world, the Wall Street, you know, NASDAQ world. And then uh, in terms of my personal life, I grew up, my father was in the Foreign Service, and I grew up in the Middle East. So I also had some unusual experiences living in uh countries where there was an ongoing revolution. <laughs> so I had stories to tell. I also had a strong feeling that uh, the world of pathology, the world of being a pathologist is largely unknown to other people. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was always, uh, in a way, it was always, uh, if, if you brought up that you were a pathologist, it was dismissed as somehow, you know, after the fact. And I, my whole life was as a surgical pathologist in and out of the operating room. It was the experience of in, in a hospital with 600 beds, being at the microscope and, uh, and often uh, on a daily basis, being the only one who knew what the correct diagnosis was. So I, I, I felt like uh, I wanted to give voice to the importance of the diagnostic surgical pathologist. Okay, I like that. That really, and that kind of stays in line with what what I'm doing with this podcast, just bringing attention to pathology, which I think, you know, your book kind of does that as well. Yeah. 
in addition to telling your own story. Uh, so let's get into then your introduction to pathology because you you go through that uh, in, in pretty great detail in the book. Right. So yeah. this it involved like several key events uh, leading to working with Dr. Chapman Binford. Right. Now, all right. So let's talk about Dr. Binford and his influence on you. Yeah. So my uh, I didn't start out thinking as a medical student that I would go into pathology, but I did a summer internship in the Philippines on a remote island called Cebu. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked in a leprosarium, and uh, the leprosarium was there built by an American merchant uh, on the occasion of his son essentially being exiled there uh, after the Spanish-American War because he contracted leprosy and he wasn't allowed back. And there were more than 100 such Americans. Uh, and the, uh, the father uh, uh, went there to visit his son and he, was, he found the situation deplorable. So he built a leprosarium, which has a lot of the features of Rich Colton. It's very impressive. And he uh, ultimately, um, when the last American soldier died there, uh, he gave the leprosarium to the Philippine government. And there was only one stipulation. That was that the head physician be uh, an American physician scientist. And the reason he did that was he wanted it to be that that they were always there was always a connection with the latest greatest science. So it was really meant to be not so much an, a matter of control as a beneficence. You know, let let us always be at the forefront. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that chief medical officer was Chapman Binford, and uh, Chapman Binford is one of the grand uh, men of pathology. If you wrote a history. Uh, of it, and he's one of the co-authors of the fascicle on in infectious and tropical diseases out of the AFIP, and uh, he is also the man who headed the team that learned how how to grow Mycobacterium leprosum uh, in the ear of an armadillo, and so uh, I went there in the summer. He 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 would be there uh, one or two months every year. And it was the first time I had seen a pathologist in action who was um, not just after the fact, you know, after everything had happened doing the autopsy, but someone who was at the forefront and coming up with a, a better way to grow the organism, a better way to treat it, a better way to treat patients. And it was the first experience I had had where you, uh, in, in a position like that, you can affect the lives of thousands of people, not just the one before you. So, yeah, I, I was inspired by him uh, that there was the, there's a way to uh, change medicine uh, from inside, from the laboratory. Yeah, and there's a there's a quote in the book that you uh, you say Dr. Binford about or about Dr. Binford. It says, whereas the frontline MD touches the patient directly, the laboratory-based physician developing new tests and new insights may touch many thousands or even millions. Yeah. And it seems like this perspective then going on and, and founding Ventana, that kind of perspective stayed with you th through the rest of your career. Does that, does that make sense? That's true. You know, when uh, if I go back 
to the founding of Ventana. And, uh, you know, uh, Ventana was bringing uh, new capability to pathology. I mean, you have to go back now 40 years. And uh, we were doing our chemistry on tissue biopsies by hand. And to bring it into the world of automation, to bring it into the world of a high analytic and precise level of analysis, I, I needed to hire engineers and chemists. And uh, when I started doing that, I, I wanted talented people, but the talented people are already well paid and have a good job. But the way that I uh, sought to persuade them was that medicine needed changing. It needed what they knew. And uh, if they did that, they would affect the lives of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, if I interviewed 20 engineers, there would be one or two that were interested in the fact that they might change something, transform something. And today, uh, I mean, I, I just saw the figures uh, from last year in the on the Ventana instruments, uh, there more than 52 million patients were studied in more than 100 countries. So, and and we do uh, still uh, have a quarterly meeting in which, uh, well, up until I retired, but now uh, the uh, the president following me or the uh, chief medical officer Keith Wharton. Uh, they interview a patient in front of all of the employees. And um, really to remove th th this notion that the pathologist is down in the basement or in the lab, disconnected from the patient, I disagree. I think we, we really should not be shy about the fact that anymore in pathology, we not only make the diagnosis, we often determine what the therapy is going to be. So we just need to stand up and say that. That's what I'm doing, and let me meet the person I'm affecting. Yeah, I like that. You you, you talk about that in the book, too. And I think it probably is helpful to, for the patient as well to actually see and talk with the people that are yeah. helping to make their diagnosis. It's got to be comforting for them. Yeah, so here's one of the things I find very interesting. You know, if you – I have five grandkids, and uh, a few years ago, one of them fell out of a tree – and he, he broke his arm. And um, so uh, we rushed him off to the hospital, had an x-ray, put a cast on. And then when he came back from the hospital, uh, he's showing all the kids in the neighborhood. He's got a, on his smartphone, he has a, uh, his x-ray, right? And he's showing all of them. And I, I've always thought it, it was uh, incredible that everyone and anyone will show you their x-ray. And no one ever shows you their histopathology. Oh, well, uh, that would oh, be, yeah. really, who's going to do that, right? right? Well, no, actually, I can say, as a diagnostic pathologist, a lot of times the diagnosis comes down to a specific field. Right there, there it is. That's what tells me it's invasive. That's what tells me it's malignant, right? And the notion that we never can uh, pass that on to the patient as a specific image and they don't share it with anyone else, right? So uh, I, I feel like we are in a visual field and we ought to communicate the, the key visual aspects just like that 
that snapped uh, forearm bone. So what do you, what do you think then about because there's it's sort of not popular yet, but starting to become popular that pathologists actually see patients. Yeah. So in my day, I I was very close. My closest partner was the the head oncologist in the clinic. I used to go down, uh, you know, not every clinic, but particularly he would ask me to talk to certain patients who were, who really wanted to know and understand. And so we had a two-headed scope in the clinic and I sometimes would sit there and, you know, almost uniformly people are fascinated to, to look at that uh, biopsy, that glass slide, that immunohistochemical result, and realize it's them, and this is how everything's figured out. So I, I was fortunate to have a partner and have partners that uh, really availed the input of the pathologist beyond a written report. Getting back to the book, you write about how you became interested in immunohistochemistry, which, as you mentioned, was new at the time and was done by hand. Right. Right. So did you have an idea of like the potential of this field even back at the beginning? Well, I I, uh, I think, yeah, I, I, I was dealt some advantages. I was, I was a, a fellow at Stanford. I was in Roger Warnke's lab, and he had uh, just done a sabbatical in England and learned about Kohler and Milstein, the method of making monoclonal antibodies. And Roger came back and he said, um, I think they're not medical guys. I think uh, we ought to turn it to medicine. And, and we can do that by splash, adding a dye to the monoclonal and splashing it on tissue. So we started doing that. Literally everything we did was new. We wrote an article every month, you know. Uh, and so that, uh, it, it was uh, all of a sudden, looking through the scope, you could see the chemistry of tissue biopsy. And uh, so then I went on to be an assistant professor at University of Arizona, and I started doing that. And there was the the academic, uh, you know, thrill of it, but I was covering the hospital half the time. And once I started doing it, I started to realize that um, sometimes uh, there were mistaken diagnoses that were corrected by uh, immunohistochemistry. Sometimes uh, you could direct therapy based on it. So in the monthly and, and quarterly pathology meetings in Tucson and around the state and eventually around the West, I had a collection of cases that showed how it was that the diagnosis was changed by immunohistochemistry. So I'll give you an example. I would often lead with a breast cancer case, which the biochemical method was precisely said to have uh, a pretty high level of estrogen receptor. And uh, this woman, then treated with an anti-estrogen, um, recurred within three months. And uh, going back and uh, getting the block and studying it, that estrogen receptor was on her normal cells, not on her cancer. And so uh, she she was never an ER positive or estrogen receptor breast cancer. She was a triple negative, okay? And what I realized was everyone was comfortable with a biochemical analytic method, which was 
with a standard error of 1% and therefore considered to be precise, you know, hallelujah, precision medicine, right? Right. It, it was analytically precise and biologically imprecise. And uh, I realized that you needed the intact tissue to see the lay of the land, to see that sigma was not on the cancer, okay? And then, I, you know, as a generality in medicine, we don't treat numbers. We don't treat the, that biochemical number. We treat a patient, and we are, we're in charge of dealing with the complexity, right? So a method which allows you to view uh, all that's going on, view the context of that chemistry, is what's required to fulfill your obligation to comprehend the complexity, right? And by the way, that you can say that's very much the case with an H&E, right? It, it shows you the lay of the land. And uh, it, so I think this is greatly, it was greatly underestimated at the time. And you can say to some extent, it's still underestimated. So th that's where the voice of the pathologist comes in. Who Who's going to amend or correct or criticize the work of the precise chemist unless it's someone who who goes beyond that one value to what's going on in general so mm -hmm. that's what i would say put a burr in my saddle <laughs> I, I knew that you know uh to me fundamentally that uh pathology diagnostic pathology is overwhelmingly the practice of medicine it's not just kicking out diagnoses. It's really figuring out what's going on here. What's the underlying uh, diagnosis and, and what's driving it and what to do about it. And uh, I, I think keeping the tissue intact is critical to doing that. Now, once you started really getting into IHC and it started to catch on, at least in, in your hospital, th that's when you started coming up with the idea of automation because your staff was way overworked. Yeah. So how did, yeah. how did that automation idea develop? So, uh, you know, at the time I, I, I had a university position, university of Arizona. There were, I, we had fellows, we had residents, uh, we had, we were doing, uh, meetings around the state and around the rest, but West and people started sending me through the mail, even blocks. In those days, remember when you were doing immunohistochemistry by hand, every you had to do all of the reagents by hand. Some of them mixed right at the last minute. We yeah. we were using diaminobenzidine. You had to uh, put uh, you know put on a work under a hood, wear a mask, wear a gown have on gloves, and then you were mi mixing as you went. And so it would take us all day to do an, a few assays. And uh, yet, the, the, what I realized was what we were doing applied to every, um, virtually every patient. I mean, you know, come on, there's a, there's a denominator of almost 300,000 proteins in the, in, in, in the human biology, and we're looking at biopsies, and we what, we're going to do one or two? I mean, you really, um, we, we need to know dozens of things about what's going on in this tissue. And so uh, at our weekly research meeting, because there was a side of the lab that was on the, the side of clinical research, um, we 
it, the topic of how, how do we deal with the need to do 50 of these a week as opposed to five. And uh, there was a, it, <laughs> I couldn't stop it. The fellows, the residents were getting up to the blackboard and designing their own instrument. So, in fact, I then, uh, after a few months of this, uh, drew some cartoons that sort of summarized what all the ideas we had. And I realized, uh, okay, that's an amateur effort to to get it into the practice of medicine. We needed real engineers and real chemists. I, and to get them, I needed to raise capital. And to do that, I had to start uh, going to venture capitalists and floating the idea. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, um, you could say in a way naively, uh, I, I started. But at the same time, with cartoons in hand, in a way we we imagined, we visualized, we conceptualized what it was that could change our work. And our, so, yeah, that's what, uh, yeah, I think it was the sense of the unmet need of patients that drove us. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Tom Grogan. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhirov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Tom Grogan on the People of Pathology podcast. You mentioned about drawing the cartoons, and you include those in the book. I think it's, it's some it, you call it the gizmo at the time, right? Was, yeah, was that the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it, it's uh, it's funny how you come to an obsession. You know, <laughs> I mean, these characters yeah. that become obsessed with climbing Mount Everest or something. You know, really, it's pretty inconvenient. <laughs> you know, why 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 are you compelled to do this, right? And we, we were compelled based on our experience uh, that uh, there was no tool to, to accomplish what we wanted yet. But the great scientific invention, you could say, was the, the method uh, to make monoclonal antibodies. And it, it wasn't that complicated, you know, to add a dye, a chromogen, splash it on some tissue and see it in the scope. It, you know, it was, it's like you could generate... Uh, out of an era of uh, black and white TV, all of a sudden you could see, you know, color TV <laughs> and right. on each and every biopsy. And, uh, yeah, my clinical colleagues were saying, I want this done in every one of my patients. So you imagine at the time there was no billing code for immunohistochemistry. So right. here I am out there peddling the idea that, there should be an instrument made that facilitates doing this uh, and, and, 
every patient in every hospital in every country in the world. And I'm peddling the idea it would, what, you're going to buy an instrument and you're going to pay for the assays and there's no billing code whereby you would be uh, compensated? How is that going to work? So, uh, and it turns out, I, okay, uh, many of the, I was rejected 35 times by venture capitalists, right? And the two main ways I was rejected, one of them was uh, that, um, look, you're adding expense to the practice of medicine and there is no compensation for that work. So, you know, how's this going to work? If we give you $50 million, how will we ever, how's this money ever going to come back? That was one rejection, you would say, the economic rejection. The other was, uh, okay, in your example of breast cancer, there is a precise biochemical method, and you're going to substitute a a method done uh, on on a microscopic slide in a microscope, which is more subjective and uh, subject to the analysis of a pathologist, you, that's what's going to improve the practice. And so those are the two main dismissals that I experienced. And I think the only reason I um, overcame that was I realized that neither of those rejections had anything to do with what it meant for a patient to have far more information and analysis known about their biopsy. And I decided when when I finally encountered someone who could say that um, it was unnecessary to know more, then I would surrender. But in the end, the, the way to get a new billing code is to produce something of value. And uh, it, it pretty much happened that uh, we succeeded first in some of the well-known national uh, clinics because many of the patients who are difficult and uh, have, have don't have certain diagnoses end up in places like that. And that those clinics put a high value on the fact that we could, we could handle everything that was coming through the door. So we started small. Okay. And then once you had those couple of clinics kind of on your side, I guess it became, it started, the ball started rolling and things slowly became easier. Yeah, yeah, um, and it was. It took a surprisingly long time. <laughs> I would say, uh, yeah, we we were we were, for example, at the the Oxner Clinic, the the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, perhaps uh, had and, and what would ha- what happened ultimately is uh, we were saying to an individual hospital or practice you could operate at the level of the Cleveland Clinic if you if you have this uh, this tool, right? And okay. it's interesting, right? You you it turns out then for the pathologist who so often has a job being in charge of expenses uh, and is not given uh, the ability to um, you know make a capital investment and and change the practice of medicine, no. Uh, we, you're just in charge of making sure we don't spend too much money, right? Uh, but what we started to do then is say, uh, look, uh, let let us speak to you, the you know the 
what we call the C-suite, the executive suite in your hospital, and show them uh-huh. they they could bring this uh, capability to your community, and they and then uh, the leadership could take credit for that too. So, but it was a slow boat to China. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, yeah, and just the whole—I mean, just you—you you tell the whole story throughout the book, and it's just—it—it it, it, like you can feel the what must have been frustrating at times, most of the time, and then it, it's really inspiring that you succeeded in the end. <laughs> well, yeah, I—I I, I think uh, Dennis, you might have heard me say that uh, I only succeeded in this matter uh, in the medical instrument. Uh, business because my wife succeeded in the restaurant business mm, and okay. I, I write about the fact that uh, yeah. in the 12 years I lost money at the low point uh, 50 million she had uh, for a decade been running a, a restaurant and uh, yeah so I, I think part of my ability to endure uh, was that I I had a wife who was in business and just understood, you know, that. So I used to joke that we were bi-entrepreneurial, right? And there was, so, yeah, so I wasn't being fussed with about, you know, uh, you know, how come you're coming home at nine o'clock? At nine o'clock, I'd go to the restaurant. (laughs) So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think when you personally, make an uncommon choice. Of course, the the person you're married to and your family is caught up in that uncommon choice, right? And they're either for it or against it. I, I think they're typically for it if, if in the process, uh, they're on their own uh, journey, they're on their own, they're, they're able to benefit as well. The benefit for us in 12 years uh, was not money. (laughs) The benefit for us was more of uh, what I I would say is the, you know, the satisfaction of uh, being involved in high purpose. Right, right. And it it makes the point of having, you you need to have, you know, nobody succeeds on their own. You need to have a good team around you, whether it's your, like you said, your wife, family, and this and this goes, uh, I want to go back to talk about your parents a little bit because you talk about them throughout the book as well, especially your right. mother. Um, and yeah. uh, you say that they taught you that the universe needs improving and that you were educated and capable enough to do it. Yeah. And right. And that it seems like that lesson stuck with you throughout all of this. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, uh, yeah. So, that's part of what you get from writing a memoir is, you know, when you, it's you, you relive everything. It's the second time through, right? The -hmm. first time uh, when we, when we're all uh, pursuing our work, we're all pursuing our goals. You're caught up in what you, what you must do, what the next task is and, and less on, well, why did you choose that? And, and what led you down that path, right? But when you're in your 70s and you look back, you can say, well, look, I grew up in a family where um, you were never allowed to complain for more than a couple minutes before you were asked, uh, what were you going to do about it, right? So I, I realized uh, 
yeah, I, I, I grew up in the setting which was uh, had a strong bias to action. And uh, I do tell the story in the book uh, about my father. When my parents retired, I had a brother who was mentally disabled, severely mentally disabled. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and thanks to the, to the, the uh, mental health system in Massachusetts and the beneficence of the Kennedys, there's a great uh, system there. My brother was in that system uh, in that, and, and he was in a home, right, um, which my parents visited every weekend. But eventually my father worked with two state legislators. He figured out that my brother, who eventually got a job uh, putting shirts in boxes in a dry cleaner and had uh, Medicaid and had all of these um, state supports for in the um, at the home, that if he went in with another chap there, uh, they could afford a mortgage and uh, they could um, own a, a condominium. And my, so these two legislators got excited about it, and uh, they, they came up with a, an accommodation uh, that, to allow a special category of loans to the disabled. And it turns out my brother went in with Roland, and they uh, lived in this apartment. They left the home. They lived in that apartment, visited by the social worker, uh, and uh, they they ended up living there another twenty years. And then when that was over, uh, the the two of them are no longer with us. Uh, that apartment was turned back to the state. Okay, so okay. Uh, it was an example of my father uh, engaged in an activity that in, which gained value. Right, it was it was fundamentally entrepreneurial. And so what we would take as endless charity was, no, it was, it was uh, giving back, right? So I realized I, I had it in my DNA. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, the last thing I wanted to ask you was about, like, pathology is evolving into the era of precision medicine, companion diagnostics. We're talking about digital pathology, computational pathology, yeah. those kinds yeah. of things. And it seems like there are some parallels to the beginning of IHC, you know, trying to convince the greater medical community of the need. There's now, you know, finally, there's some uh, CPT codes for digital pathology. Yeah. What do you think about how pathology is evolving into this new era? Yeah, I say bring it all on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the history of medicine, no one was ever harmed by too much information. Okay. I, I, I think actually there's a potential for a great synthesis. And that is uh, all these added technologies add to the, um, you know, the, the depth of understanding of a given biopsy. And I, I think the great synthesis would be to weave all of it into one report, you know, and to what I was saying earlier, um, could you, could you take um, the key uh, X-ray, the key, H&E, the key immunohistochemistry, the key uh, molecular finding, the key survival curve, uh, the key reference uh, to therapy, uh, and a one-page report, which is highly visual, and hand it to the patient, right? So 
I, I had an experience with this. I had a colleague, uh, one of the most important people in the history of Ventana, Chris Gleason. Uh, the year after we retired, he developed a brain tumor. And Chris and his wife and I were on a plane flying to Duke University because that was where the, the latest, greatest treatment was. And I had composed what I just described for you, a report that had his key X-ray finding, his key HME, okay. his immunohistochemistry, the PCR, the articulated mutation from the literature, the, the likely survival, and the choices for therapy and the references on one page. Okay. So when we were flying there, we're on the plane. And uh, what I realized is it wasn't just that this is so we could summarize everything for this next physician, but I'm sitting next to Chris's wife, Bronwyn, and on that one page, she comes to understand the detail of what's going on. Okay. So, and then when we land and we uh, meet with that oncologist, uh, when we're going out of the clinic, uh, he says to me, can you do this on every patient, this one page? And I said, no. And he said, you just did it. I said, mm. it took, I did this, you know, by hand. It's a composition, right? Right. And it, it reminded me just about the experience I had had almost 35 years before that when asked, could I do the immunohistochemistry of every patient? And I said, no, right? It's dark. I have to go home, right? So I think there's still great undone um, bits of, uh, of pathology that, that we must accomplish. And one of them is, is the communication piece. Another one is the integration piece. All, everything you were describing. Give me your digital analysis. Give me your, uh, you know, the, uh, anything, tell, whatever uh, chat GPT wants to tell me, let it tell me, okay? Okay. I, I believe that the fundamental is, has to do with the synthesis of what that means. And uh, I'll park chat GPT right then and say, uh, uh, so this is, going to be relevant to action we take in a human being. And so what you want, the way I view the diagnostic pathologist is all this information, as sophisticated as it is, has to move through the frontal cortex of a medically knowledgeable uh, diagnostician who says what it means, okay, and what action should be taken. And I believe that person should be a pathologist. Yes. I love it. That's, I completely agree. I think that's that's a, a perfect place to end. Doc, Dr. Grogan, this has been a super interesting conversation. The book is, I, I love the book. I tore through it in just a couple of days, and there's so much more in it that we probably could have talked about. Dr. Tom Grogan, thank you very much. Well, Dennis, thank you. And uh, I, if we've talked one medical student into going to pathology, it'll all be worth it. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes, definitely. Okay, Dennis. All right, thank you. Okay, have a good day. All right. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Ken Bloom as we talk about some of the new computational pathology techniques that are being developed. So, and there's a number of companies that are doing this. So they're trying to do things like predict prostate cancer, uh, predict a genomic signature, 
predict whatever. We, we call it internally at Nuclei H and E to X, right? So you just tell me what you want to predict from an H and E and you give me enough cases and I can put that into my convoluted neural network. And you know, with enough cases, the network will start to learn how to do those predictions. Now, for some okay. things like tumor, I'm not a huge believer only because from practical experience, when we look at those really tough cases, and this goes back to orig- the original telepathology experiments, right, on the, on the uh, frozen section breast, you know, 90, 95% of what we look at as pathologists is really straightforward. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Ken Bloom in episode 135. All right, great bit. Thanks to Dr. Tom Grogan. And once again, the book title is Chasing the Invisible, A Doctor's Quest to Abolish the Last Unseen Cancer Cell. And like I said, I enjoyed the book. It's a great story of dedication and perseverance. And it really highlights the importance of pathology in medicine and how a pathologist affects the lives of thousands, sometimes millions of patients. And it was interesting for me personally. I mean, when I started as a lab assistant, in histology in 1997, I remember the lab where I worked had just gotten one of the, it must've been one of the first versions of the Ventana auto stainer. And though I really didn't understand it at the time, it was interesting to see how this machine worked and what it could do. So check out the book. I'll have a link in the show notes to that. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at people at path or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.